Greetings. This is Jessica Schmidt, Director of Investment Communications here at Diamond Hill, and this is Understanding Edge. Today we have guest host Matt McLaughlin, who recently joined Diamond Hill as our International Strategy Product Specialist. We're happy to have him at Diamond Hill and on our podcast today. Our international analysts sat down with Matt to share their insights gained from recent research trips around the world. In this two-part series, they explore Japan, Scandinavia, Canada, and India. In today's discussion, we'll focus on Japan, but stay tuned for part two, which will be posted later this month. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and I hope you enjoy the conversation with Matt McLaughlin and our international analysts. Hello, this is Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist for the International Strategy here at Diamond Hill. Today, I am joined by three podcast guests, our dedicated international research analysts, Chris Peel, Chendor Virapin, and Micah Martin. The international team has been busy traveling so far this year, and we thought it'd be a good idea to run through some of their recent travels and some of their takeaways. Guys, welcome to the show. Great to be here. First of all, question out to the group and and we can all get your your, your input here. Uh, where have you all been traveling in the last 12 months and what are your plans for future trips this year? Uh, maybe start off with uh, Chendor and then go to Micah and then to Chris. Sure. So over the last year or so, I've bon- gone to a couple of conferences and I have a few more lined up to end the year. Um, so um, the first one was a trip to Japan and the focus there was to uh, meet with video game companies and also companies from the healthcare industry in Japan. Um, to me, you know, Japan has a legendary gaming industry, and there was a lineup of four or five companies um, that was re- that I was really excited to meet. And then I also met with a few companies in medtech and pharma as well. The other conference was more healthcare specific. It was a Goldman Sachs conference in Southern California. And there, the goal was to understand opportunities and headwinds uh, in various subsectors of healthcare, especially in a post-COVID world. Um, I have a few future uh, trips lined up. So one of them is a trip to India in September for the JP Morgan India conference. And again, over there, my focus is going to be healthcare oriented. Um, also, to better understand, you know, ground realities when you know in terms of infrastructure reform, et cetera. So that should be a very interesting trip. And then I occasionally do stock agnostic trips as well. So one of them is to the Carbon Therapeutics Conference in Boston. And over there, my goal is to understand diseases from a stock agnostic manner and also the current status of medical research and also, you know, attend panels with doctors. So that should be interesting. And finally, I think in December, I'm going to round off the year with a trip to London to attend the Berenberg uh, Pan-European Conference. So that should also cover multiple industries and multiple subsectors. So, okay, so I can go next. Um, uh, so in um, last September, I did a conference in London and the goals there were to just to kind of get a feel for um, meeting a lot of different European companies with a, in a lot of different variety of different industry um, areas. I also wanted to go visit a number of Howden Joinery depots. Um, just wanted to do some on the ground work, travel to look at multiple, multiple um, kind of basically their depot, kind of basically like their version of a store and then some of their competitors just doing a sanity check on a lot of the different dynamics of what makes up a typical depot. Um, 
from, from what management has said. And so that was a very you know positive experience. I went to Tokyo in late February, early March, the same conference, Chendor, and and Chris went to, I met with roughly 20 companies, a large variety of different industries and sectors, and really got a good feel for kind of what's going on in the Japanese uh, Japanese market. Uh, in June, I attended a large CEO conference in Paris, getting to meet a number of different CEOs of very much a, more of a large cap type of um, European, um, Western European conference. And just last week, I went to Calgary, Canada for a trip to go um, visit an oil sands project. And I met with some oil companies both before and after uh, the day trip there. And going forward, I don't have a lot of anything set in stone yet, but I'm tentatively doing a Nordic trip maybe in September um, to go meet with a number of different companies there, but still a few more details to be ironed out there. Yeah. And so for me, um, I'm actually fresh off a trip uh, to the Nordics area. Um, just got back in June visiting, uh, spent some time in Finland, Norway, and then Sweden. Uh, met with a variety of different companies. Um, we can get into this a little bit more later, but the opportunity sets are uh, a little bit different than they are in the U.S. in terms of size and uh, and number of opportunities. The markets are small. So um, you know, it's a pretty good opportunity to see a lot of different companies in a in a short period of time. Um, so I spent a week there in June, like I said. Um, before that, uh, did a quick trip to New York City um, to meet with a variety of different European uh, companies a across a number of different industries, um, a number of different market caps. Um, and then before that, like Chindor and Mike have already mentioned, uh, was on the Japan trip um, in early February and March. Um, and then before that, last September, spent some time in Paris, France, uh, seeing a variety of, of different companies in sort of the small to smid market cap range um, at an investor conference there. Uh, for the rest of the year, I've got one thing on the agenda. Um, I think September exploring an opportunity maybe to go visit Hong Kong um, and see a number of different companies there um, over a week or so. So, Great. Thanks, guys. And it's uh... I think it's safe to say that uh, the team is accumulating a lot of frequent flyer miles, so that's that, that's great to hear. Maybe just start off with some some questions as far as takeaway from some of these trips. Um, maybe over to Chendor to you. You know, for, for the average person who has never been to Japan, how would you describe the country um, to that average person from the U.S. who's maybe never traveled there and doesn't know maybe some of the more cultural and kind of on the ground feeling differences? Uh, that you get when you're in we're in Tokyo and and I think you visited one other city there. Um, so maybe talk a little bit about that. Sure, Matt. So um, so I've been fascinated with Japan for a long time. So when I first moved to the US, I lived in an international dorm. And you know, on our floor we had people from many countries. And for some reason, Japan has always attracted me. Um, to me, uh, including Singapore, I think Japan would be the best gateway Asian country to visit, uh, to dip your feet in. So once you've experienced Japan, it kind of opens up all of Asia to you. So to me, um, that would be, if you haven't traveled to Asia, I would say Japan and Singapore would be my top picks to uh, you know experience Asia. Uh, but specifically for Japan, for me, it's, you know, it's characterized by warm and friendly people. They're extremely hospitable. Um, it's a society that strives for efficiency. There's self-respect, there's mutual respect, and there's a sense of harmony. And as a country, it's extremely beautiful. 
and uh, the cuisine is fantastic. So from a qualitative uh, standpoint, for someone who doesn't know much about Asia or Japan, I would say that would be the summary uh, uh, for Japan. But what fascinates me even more is the long arc of Japanese history. So, you know, over the last 400 years, Japan went from 200 years of isolation, forced globalization, rapid industrialization, defeat in World War II, rising from the ashes, being a, you know, a commodity exporter to a high value exporter. And, you know, it's gone to that full arc. And the question is given, you know, the demographic challenges, can it reinvent itself again? Um, given its history, it's capable of doing so, but maybe in a slightly different way than the last 50 to 70 years. And the other thing that Japan, I mean, some people recognize this and some people don't, but you know, it is one of the few countries that exported soft power without having hard power. So to me, that is a fascinating uh, characteristic of Japan. You know, some of the you know things that we take for granted, you know, high-speed trains, you know, the Walkman, the laptop, you know, LEDs, OLEDs, you know, in my field, electron microscopes, you know, endoscopy, optical technology, things like statins, you know, gene editing, stem cells. Immuno-oncology, which is a hundred plus billion dollar industry today, came from or was, you know, one of the innovators are from Japan. Um, HIV research and drugs, Alzheimer's, I mean, the list goes on. So the, to me as an investor, the question is, what does the future hold? And I think in some pockets of industry within Japan, I think there are tremendous opportunities to capitalize on innovation and also with companies that are becoming more globally focused. Um, since my focus is in healthcare, that's something I've been keenly tracking over the last few years, and I am seeing tangible changes. So Japan, to me, if you ask me over the next 10, 15 years, yes, we have the challenges, but it's a very exciting country to look at in, you know, personally as a, as a tourist or traveler, but also as an investor. Great. Thanks, Shandor. That, that's really interesting. I don't know if uh, the average person understands how much of uh, kind of those Japanese soft power items, if you will, uh, have been exported and that we use on a daily basis. Uh, maybe maybe turning to to to, to Chris, um, you know, when you travel to Japan and talk to Japanese management teams, how would you say their mindset may differ from that in the U.S. or even kind of Western European uh, management teams? Well, how do they answer questions differently? How do they think about business differently? Uh, love to hear your thoughts there. Yeah, sure. So in general, I'd say, um, you know, for the most part, if we're if we're speaking generally, I'd say they're very similar. The management teams are in Japan um, to those in the Western world. Um, there's a few different different uh, nuances to the, to this market that we can get into, but I'd say, I mean, looking broadly, Japan, keep in mind, is the third largest economy in the world. Um, they've got a top five index. The JPX, I think, is is a top five in terms of market cap. So these are very sort of astute, you know, capable, sophisticated leaders running, you know, highly successful global enterprises. So, um, you know, from that perspective, um, you know, very kind of similar to the U.S. Uh, and Western world, I'd say. Where where it's different, I think, um, you know, at the margin, a lot of these things may, you know, just boil down to cultural differences. But if you're a Western investor and you're looking, you know, broadly across Japan market, what you may notice is a lot of times what may come across as inefficient balance sheets. Um, so, you know, you'll see companies that have, you know, upwards 25, 30, 40 percent, even over half of their market cap um, in terms of cash. Um, and that can be, you know, a little bit different to, to, the, to the West. 
Um, we can touch on why that is, you know, briefly here in just one second. Um, but that's one sort of difference that stands out initially. Um, and then second, I'd say, you know, while Chindor mentioned a lot of the innovation that's come out of Japan, I think in general, in terms of management style of Japanese companies, they, they're sort of the stereotype that they're slow to react, um, sort of slow to change, slow to slow to restructure, you know, spin things, spin assets off if um, or restructure if there's a need to do so. Um, you know, and I think, you know, that kind of differs a little bit to the U.S. when we think about some of our tech and innovative companies, um, you know, Amazon and Google and Apple, we've just seen a wave of tech layoffs, um, short of this, sort of this shoot first and ask questions later type mentality um, that we're used to in the West. I think Japanese culture or Japanese management teams in general are a lot more methodical and intentional um, with strategy shifts. So it may take a little bit longer, um, you know, than what we're used to here. Um, but I think, you know, at the end, most of this just ties down to, to cultural differences. So um, and the way that, you know, the biggest thing is that Japan views the corporate stakeholders different than we do in the United States. So, right, we come from the U.S. It's got a very traditional capitalistic mentality, you know, sort of a Milton Friedman-esque view of a corporation where, you know, the sole purpose of a corporation is to max, maximize shareholder profits, right? The shareholders will elect the, the board of uh, directors who then, you know, hire a management team. But at the end of the day, their job is to, you know, create value for the owners of the business. And anything outside of this is could be seen as like mismanagement or malpractice, you know, and, and basically a disservice to the owners of the business. I think where it's different in Japan is that there's less of an extreme of a, you know, ownership mentality there. There's many different stakeholders within Japanese businesses and shareholders are just one of the many, um, you know, that are interests that are being managed collectively across Japanese enterprises. So, for example, you know, we have suppliers, we have uh, employees. Um, you know, we even have, um, you know, some nationalistic interest in some case. So, um, you know, a lot of times, like I mentioned, when you see, you look broadly across Japanese businesses and you see a lot of cash on the balance sheet, a lot of times Japanese managers can get the reputation or maybe this, the stigma and, and Western investors can look at that as an inefficient use of capital, uh, right, and not maximizing, um, you know, the efficiency of the balance sheet and maximizing shareholder returns. What I, what I think after talking to several of these different management teams, I think they they understand these concepts deeply and can talk through them, you know, in in detail um, about you know the the optimal capital structure in a balance sheet. I think what I've taken away after several conversations over the years is that it's not that they don't understand these things; it's more of just a cultural difference in terms of managing different stakeholder interests that you know leads to some of these what we would think as inefficiencies um, as Western investors, but. You know, over time, you've seen movements um, for for some of this uh, getting better. Um, and um, over time, there are changes. But again, I just go back to that sort of being slower and more methodical and intentional with change in Japan. Um, so we are seeing, I think, some changes on the margin here. But um, it's, it's, it's just something to be aware of as, you know, Western investors, when we're looking to price these businesses, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's just different, you know, than what we're used to. And it's something to probably reflect in discount rates and multiples that we'd be willing to, you know, pay for businesses in a place like Japan, where maybe to us has a less efficient capital structure than what we're used to. You know, maybe we need to reflect those um, in, like I said, in the discount rates and the and the multiples we're willing to pay for businesses um, in this part of the world. Sure. You know, the, the Japanese corporate governance has been such a, a hot topic this year. 
Micah, when, when, when you met with companies in Japan, did you get the sense that there's real widespread change there uh, in, in how the companies are being managed and, and maybe some of the, the things that, that Chris touched on as well? Did, did you get that sense as well? And maybe uh, maybe some similarities and some differences from your conversations? Yeah, I do. I do feel like um, there there is change afoot um, in the Japanese corporate governance um, system. Uh, there are many things that are driving that. Uh, one um, key factor is in uh, earlier this year, the Tokyo Stock Exchange issued um, kind of some guidelines and suggestions for companies to try to get their price to book value above one. And so in the conference we went to in kind of late February, early March, there was a lot of conversation and meeting with CEOs about this Um it's, it's, for reference, in February, about half of the companies on the Tokyo Stock Exchange traded below uh, one times book value versus, you know, in the U.S., it's maybe three, four percent or so in the S&P 500 that are trading below book value. So it's a, a very large quantity of in terms of companies and their stock exchange. Um, this is driven, you know, many of the things Chris was talking about, high cash holdings, um, managing to different stakeholders. Another factor that is worth pointing out is the cross shareholdings. A lot of Japanese companies will own shares of um, customers, um, suppliers, uh, various kind of uh, to keep relationships open. The Toyota Group is probably the biggest example of that. If you, um, you know, there's some companies that their shares in some of these Toyota subsidiaries are actually worth more than the entire market cap and a, a wide variety of kind of confusing things going on in the cross shareholdings. But um, in essence, the Tokyo Stock Exchange is making a push to try to remedy both of those things, um, increasing dividends, increasing buybacks with excess cash, and gradually trying to encourage companies to reduce cross shareholdings. And we are seeing changes in this. There are more buyback announcements. There are more, you, you can kind of see over time from annual reports that the number of cross shareholdings is, is declining, but it, it will also take time. Uh, it's not an overnight, um, thing that will just be be solved right away. And I think um, that was where talking with the management teams was was very helpful because sitting over here in Columbus in our office, you can read the headlines, you can read the Tokyo, Tokyo Stock Exchange announcements, and you can read some of the annual reports. But when you actually get to sit down on in one-on-ones and talk with CEOs of these Japanese companies, I think I probably came away a little bit less optimistic than the headlines about maybe the median Japanese firm uh, Japan is a huge market. There's thousands of companies, so uh, you know there's there's always opportunities there. But um, many times in meetings, I would I would ask, they would be saying, "Oh, we need to increase our price to book value ratio. That would be our um, that would be our goal, and this is how you know we really want to do this." And then I would ask follow ups about, "Hey, what about you know would you ever consider reducing this cross shareholding, or what, what do you think about excess cash?" And and generally, I tended to receive more pushback on that. So there's. There's kind of a desire to do it, but there's also, uh, to Chris's point, there's a lot of stakeholders and tradition and time. Um, so some companies will, uh, but then others, I think it, it just it will just take time. Um, and uh, I think uh, while uh, it won't be necessarily universal that these corporate governance changes will be made, I absolutely think that from our team of looking to buy, you know, you know, go A to Z through the market, looking for good ideas. That there absolutely can be really good opportunities as these corporate governance changes um, gradually um, become more known and more popular and more culturally acceptable in Japan. Sure, definitely. You know, 
the 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 talk for so long about Japan and 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 maybe some of their demographic headwinds uh, has has been pretty pretty well known, I think, for for many international investors um, for you know a decade or two. Did and we can put this one out to the group, whoever wants to answer. Uh, did you all get a sense that these demographic headwinds uh, are really persistent, or were they were they obvious? What, what what's your take after after going there and 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 seeing them, or not seeing them? Sure, I can go first, and others can jump in. I'll, I'll just kind of more talk about it from a micro level. Obviously, the headlines macro basis, uh, but I met with a lot of companies that are heavily exposed to demographics. I, I know Chendor met with a lot of video game companies, and if you know, you're a Japanese video game company that sells worldwide, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter that much. Um, but I met with uh, a lot of railroad companies, um, pork production, children's education companies, and it it was absolutely talked about uh, in many of their annual reports, many of the discussions. It's one of the primary um, topics. Uh, railroad companies, there's, a, there's a, maybe 15 to 20 publicly traded railroads in Japan, and um, they talked about it, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a, a challenge um, for them as, you know, you have these fixed costs, the railroads, and if you have the fewer people traveling on them, that just, that just makes it a bit more challenging. Same with like the pork production, you know, where just volume um, and commodities, um, it's roughly, I think, over the last 12 months, it's roughly 1,500 people a day. Um, the population is declining by roughly 1,500 people a day. So if you're just serving pure kind of commodities and you're 100% or 90% focused in Japan, um, if you if you have a hard time getting price, then it is it is it can be it can be um, challenging. Uh, but I do think you know there are lots of really interesting opportunities. There's a lot of niche businesses that uh, many that have 70 to 80 percent of their sales internationally, and uh, there's a lot of you know companies that. Um, maybe they're smaller cap in Japan and they're growing well and they have a really big opportunity. Japan's still one of the most populous countries in the world with an excellent economy. So or excellent, you know, kind of GDP and, and different things. So um, while the demographics are um, a challenge for many companies, I do think that doesn't mean we can't find good ideas. And, and especially some of these names that are not overly exposed to the Japan kind of volume consumer kind of um, dynamic. So I, I came away optimistic on the ability to find interesting investments in Japan, but um, there are also a lot of companies where I, I do think there are there are challenges um, from a more micro um, level. And our job is to try to avoid um, the, the riskiest ones there for our clients. Maybe I can switch. just sort of follow up with maybe an anecdotal um, just perspective as, as maybe more of a tourist while I was there in Japan. You know, when I think about the demographic issues that I read about and hear about a lot um, and hear the companies talk about uh, as well, as Micah mentioned, um, you know, you, you think about, at least in the U.S., uh, weak demographics may show up on the services side, right? So like um, if you're looking, going to a restaurant or, you know, trying to find a taxi cab or, you know, some of these more service entry level serious or service jobs, um, at least in the U.S. and Western world, uh, tend to skew a little bit younger. Um, in Japan, that experience, I would say, was uh, pretty, pretty good. I mean, the service was phenomenal. Um, you know, I don't recall in all the times we, you know, we, either we went out to eat or we're trying to hail a taxi cab or, you know, moving around. 
service was never an issue. In fact, it was very, very good. I'd say even probably better <laughs> to, what, to what I've been used to in the, in the Western world, uh, having traveled around a little bit. Um, so I'd say, you know, from that perspective, you know, you couldn't really feel um, a, a big hole in terms of services if you're just, you know, isolating that experience. I will say, though, um, when you looked around, maybe the age uh, did kind of skew a little bit higher. Maybe these were, you know, retirement uh, type jobs uh, of people. Um, but, um, but yeah, for the most part, in terms of the experience itself, uh, walking around and being on the ground in Japan, um, something that's certainly palpable on, on business leaders' minds, but was, uh, you know, didn't, I didn't tend to notice it that much, uh, just walking around as a tourist. So, yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I would say another example would be also in healthcare. So if you, if you assume demographics are getting skewing towards the older population, you would think that this would be a net positive for healthcare. But if you actually end up modeling the Japanese market as a multinational operating in there or a domestic uh, Japanese company, it's pretty much negative growth because the government has been pretty draconian in its pricing measures. You have these periodic price declines. And if you have a mature you know, portfolio of products, it's essentially a declining market. So one of the things that's underappreciated about a declining market is it eventually erodes innovation. So when you don't get the price you want as a local Japanese company, you don't quite have an incentive to innovate. Now, so the, the first thing you do with a really good balance sheet is look outside, you look for deals or you try to expand geographically. Um, the other thing that I'm seeing is the Japanese government along with academia, along with industry are nurturing what could be you know, loosely compared to the Silicon Valley model where you have a lot more innovation that's getting that, want, that could be commercialized, but usually sits in the IP office of academia, for example. So talking to some of the companies, I got the sense that they're getting a lot more aggressive in promoting innovation. And I think from the government standpoint, they're also appreciating that you cannot um, suffocate the local innovative players. So the, the pricing situation could get better, but more importantly, I think uh, some subsectors of industry are turning to be more international. Um, they're open to bringing in international talent and they're also looking uh, at things more globally. So I think, I think you've seen those changes. I don't think it's gonna be a fast change. It's gonna evolve over time. I mean, based on you know, everything Mike and Chris have also mentioned, uh, but I'm seeing the positive trend there. So that's, that's just another example. Hope you enjoyed this first edition of our two-part podcast series titled Global Investment Expeditions. In part two, Matt and the international analysts explore Scandinavia, Canada, and India. We hope you'll tune in for that one as well. As always, stay safe and stay healthy, and thank you for joining us on this expedition.